Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to DEI After Five. This is a conversation that I know will probably get some folks uncomfortable, and you know I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely okay with that. Um, In today's conversation, I am going to be talking to Dr. Shauna Pangol, and you know she is a DEI disruptor, a challenger of all things status quo, and I, I actually we we connected off of LinkedIn because of a post that you did that you know spoke about HR pros not being CDOs, and I was just like yes 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 <laughs> yes, yes 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 yes. So yes. here we are. Welcome, Dr. Shauna. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to spend some time with you, and I feel like uh, everyone is kind of privy to a conversation we would be having anyway <laughs> in regard to this topic, right? <laughs> yes, this is this is a hot one. This is one yes. that you either absolutely agree with or yeah. your feelings get hurt. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you know, Sasha, what I discovered, and I kind of tripped into this discovery, um, I've been doing DEI work for 25, 26 years, and I decided to host a virtual workshop with a bunch of folks. I opened it up to the community on my social media platforms, and out of the 15 people that registered for that masterclass, 13 of them were already vice presidents of human resources, had all the SHRM certifications and other professional certifications. And to me, that really made it clear that, okay, whatever the education that our HR experts are having does not include some of the things that I was providing. And that was a really clear telltale sign for me that we need to have some more conversation around the role of DEI in the portfolio of HR and, and what should that look like depending on the organization. Yeah. You know, and I actually was going to ask you, like, how did you even get into DEI work? Because so many people kind of start their careers in HR or there's this mindset that mm-hmm. you have to be in HR in order to do DEI work. And so talk to us mm-hmm. a little bit about kind of your background and how you've gotten into this work. Mm, That's a great question. Well, you know, it's I feel like it's a comedy of errors every time I tell this story. Right. When it comes to to uh, diversity and inclusion work that I've been doing. Um, But I started out after I. In divinity, because I was specifically focusing on uh, college student spiritual development. And of course, we know religion, spirituality and so forth is one one identity group of many when it comes to DEI work. Um, so, again, kind of tripping into things. Um, and then I ended up uh, getting a position working with um, particularly in residence life, campus ministry in particular, that kind of evolved into the director of a multicultural center. I did not sign up for this job, Sasha. Let me just be <laughs> clear on that. I showed up and got hired as the associate director of a multicultural center. The director of the center that was out on FMLA chose not to return. And so Mm. three weeks into a new job, it was congratulations, Shauna, you're the director of XYZ Multicultural Center. 
So I, I had some serious on the job learning um, when it came to DEI work. And so I was in that position for quite a bit of time. And then I transitioned to a larger institution doing assessment of DEI. And then I moved into more of a chief diversity officer role. So yeah, it, it was a comedy of errors when it came to the beginning. That was not my intention or career trajectory at all. Um, but the majority of my DEI experience started in higher education and then moved out into other industries. I'm over here laughing and smiling and shaking my head because our paths are very similar. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I started you know- in higher education as well. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. I worked in what was the Office of Multicultural Affairs as an undergraduate. And then um, in grad school, it's like, okay, let me move into something else. Actually did my grad work at William & Mary. I'm actually wearing my William & Mary t-shirt today. Um, (laughs) Did my grad work at William & Mary, but had the opportunity to go to Christopher Newport University to do some, my grad assistantship. Yes. Um, yes. And did it in residence life. Yes. And so while I was there, the director of multicultural affairs at Christopher Newport left. And they were just like, hey, so you've worked in multicultural affairs. Can you split your grad assistantship? Yes. So half my time on campus at Christopher Newport, I was doing residence life. The other half I was doing multicultural. I had two offices on campus as a grad student. Oh, (laughs) my gosh. So when as you're saying this, I'm like, this is David mm-hmm. Abu. Like, is this like the higher ed MO? Like, what's really going on here? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you know, I think what's interesting about what you just mentioned too was that even as I looked back into my experience as a campus minister, my experience in DEI, I have to say, and I, I share this all the time, I wouldn't trade any of my experience in residence life because it explained so much about the lived experience of individuals, the lived experience of you know, young adults as they're blossoming in the world. And so, you know, some of the things that I was learning later on in my graduate degrees around student development theory and how they develop as human beings from a diversity perspective using various lenses of identity groups, Mm -hmm. I can connect that directly back to what I experienced in residence life. And so I I just wouldn't trade that experience, even though it was ridiculous. Um, It was (laughs) frustrating at times. It was overwhelming at times. Um, And also too, Sasha, let me just share being a native Virginian, I went to James Madison undergrad. Um, But what I think is really interesting is that as I was serving as a campus minister uh, at the University of Virginia, I was at that time serving at the same time of the Virginia Tech massacre. Mm. And so as a campus minister, if you were lucky, because there were 23 of us, I believe, um, at the University of Virginia at the time, you got to rotate. So that basically meant that you only got one, maybe two if you're lucky, but you only got one Sunday in the entire calendar year to provide the liturgy and the sermon for the year. Okay. My Sunday happened to be the Sunday following the Virginia Tech massacre. And so when you're trying to make sense of identity, you're trying to make sense of grief and trying to make sense of loss. It it was truly, you know, of course it had to be me (laughs) that happened to get that Sunday. I mean, you couldn't have uh, orchestrated it any better given the circumstances, but that really made me stay on the cutting edge of what does this mean? What does it mean for large groups of people? What does it mean for Asian communities given Mm -hmm. the perpetrator and so forth? So all of that was really important to my development as a DEI um, person, a DEI hopefully leader, disruptor, and, and asking some questions that people don't feel comfortable asking. I love it. You know, because I think that 
both of us kind of touching on this higher ed experience. And I, I absolutely agree. I talk about my experience, um, particularly in residence life, um, as, I don't want to say almost more important. It paralleled what I was learning in the classroom, right? And so exactly what you're saying, I yes, got to yes, see yes. it firsthand. Um, and working in multicultural affairs allowed me to learn more about cultures in a way that, um, I think if it had been at another time in my life, it may have impacted me differently, right? So Absolutely. I was able to help put together one of the first powwows on campus and really bring in, especially in that part of Virginia where there's so many native um, tribes mm -hmm. that are still there and active, like how do you make that That's a part right. of the community? Um, right. And so it's how do you have those conversations? How do you talk about mm -hmm. intersectionality before people were even talking about intersectionality? How right, do you empower right. people to find their voice when they feel like, well, I'm just a student, you know? And so how do you, I was one of those uh, <laughs> grad students, I guess, because I was part mm -hmm. staff, part grad. I don't know what I was, honestly. <laughs> um, right. But right, I would right. be the one, you know, the students would come to my office and, you know, they'll be complaining. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do about that? Right, right, exactly. Exactly. Right? Like, and so how do you empower? And I find that I have yes. those same skills mm -hmm. or I continued those skills throughout my DEI experience mm -hmm. and journey. Right. Mm -hmm. And so kind of going back to, you know, what we were talking about, and I and I think this is a, a perfect tie-in to what are some of the skills that you know you, you talked about doing this mm -hmm. workshop and folks coming in that had the HR experience but didn't necessarily have the DEI or diversity experience. And so what were some of the skills mm. that were missing? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the first things is, I don't even know if it's a skill or simply a mindset. Um, mm. It may be around a mindset of compliance is important, but let's go beyond it. Right. So, for example, yeah. So, you know, as you were mentioning of just about Native American tribes, for example, it's one thing to have the compliance of asking about race. Are you Native American or not? It's above and beyond compliance to provide an option in a drop down list of you are able to choose which tribe you affiliate with because mm -hmm. we're not going to create a monolithic understanding or even systematize monolithic Native American communities, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the biggest things that I've been learning as I work more and more with HR directly and work with HR professionals is that there is a culture of compliance in HR. And I'm not saying that that's not valid. It is valid and we need it. And I think that there are other people that are positioned in different ways that need to think beyond that compliance piece. And sometimes I feel like we set HR folks up for failure because mm -hmm. remember it's, it's, it's the SBO model of things. It's self behavior and others self who you think you are, the behavior, how you behave, and then others, how others perceive you. Unfortunately, you could be the best diversity person in your organization, but because you happen to be officially affiliated with human resources, others perceive you as compliance when you're really trying to move the organization beyond compliance. So that's where I really think we need to wrestle mm -hmm. with some of those issues because they are not the same role. And so I think the skill would be as an HR person to press the organization to ensure that you have people in both places, your compliance folks mm -hmm. and the folks that are thinking visionary when it comes to DEI work. Child, let me tell you. <laughs> 
You just hit on something because I think there's a couple of things in that, right? And yes, um, yes. if someone is the best DEI person within an organization, but they happen to sit in HR, they'll be seen as compliant. The flip side of that is um, the, you may have someone that is in HR that people assume know about DEI. That's right. That's right. That's right. And if they haven't done, and I talk about this, we have talked about this on several shows. If they haven't don't, done their own internal work mm -hmm. on what diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, whatever you want to mm -hmm. acronym you want to use, mm -hmm. um, then it all falls back to alignment with compliance. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And so that I think is, is one of the biggest gaps in this that, just because you have an HR background does not mean that you are a DEI practitioner. Not even close. Or should you be? Exactly. Not even close. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting is that let me let me give you a, a short story of what's happened when it came to compliance and DEI work. So one of the previous institutions that I worked with as a large university, their compliance was we need to collect these things as you know, regulatory procedure from federal mm -hmm. or state. Cool. I'm down with that. But as the DEI person, as the chief DEI person in that organization, I had to push the envelope to say, thank you for collecting that information. But we also need voluntary data mm -hmm. from LGBT communities, for example, or around socioeconomic status that accurately record, record socioeconomic status, what we, not what we think socioeconomic status is. Mm -hmm. Some of those questions where I had to push the envelope, and you're exactly right, what ends up happening is, unfortunately, organizations, especially that have a lot of white leadership at the top, assume that an HR person can handle two hats when they shouldn't, no. and they assume that that's enough. Yeah. And a compliance, as I've said before, this is not Shauna's time to bash HR folks. What I'm saying is that there is a lane that should not crash together <laughs> and yeah. there's lanes and we need both desperately. We need yeah. both. And so how does an HR person push the envelope with their senior leadership to say, I may be an HR person. Oh, and the, the double whammy being an HR person who happens to be a person of color or in some other mm -hmm. minoritized identity groups. And no, I'm not equipped to do this. And let me add a third caveat to it. I may be HR of several underrepresented identity groups and I don't want to do it. How about that? Right. Not every person of color or minoritized person wants to do DEI work. It should not be a default role for people just because they wake up in the morning and they're black, brown, LGBT, uh, have a disability. That's not okay. And so I feel like that's a point of privilege shoving mm -hmm. DEI stuff into Sasha's lap because she woke up and I perceive her as a black woman. No. Mm -hmm. Have I asked her? Have I talked to her about it? Is this part of her career trajectory that she envisions for herself? We don't have those conversations at all. Not at all. Oof, yes. You know, one of the things that you said just now, too, is even when you're focused on the compliance piece of it, um, I worked in an organization where gender was the only piece of aspect of diversity that was being yes. tracked. Yes. And so yes. that was the only thing that they programmatically wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I wasn't in HR, but I was in a DEI role, which was a whole other challenge that we'll, we'll talk about. And I've talked about before, but my thing was, okay, diversity and inclusion is more than gender. And even, even if we're going to talk about gender, let's talk about 
if we're going to talk about women, because it was specifically women, let's mm-hmm. talk about black women, white women, Asian women, Latino women, transgender women, women with disabilities, women that have intersectional identities. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, oh, no, that's just too much. We want to talk about women. So I'm like, okay, so basically you want to just talk about white women. White women. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that was their comfort zone. That was the comfort zone. And so mm-hmm. when we had an HR leader that was leading DEI that hadn't done internal work nor done diversity and inclusion work before, mm-hmm. and we had a panel talking about diversity within the organization, she didn't understand why there was pushback right. when there was an all white female panel and the one man of color on the panel, the question that was asked of him was, how can you be an ally to them? Oh, Oh my, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Right, so it's yeah. when you have those, and I hate to use the term blind spots, but that's what they are, what right? Yeah. When yeah. you don't necessarily see your own limitations and challenges in this work, um, mm-hmm. you tend to lead and create programs and opportunities from your lens that's that right. may cause more harm. That's right, that's right. right? Exactly. Which then causes HR to do more work. But because HR is doing the work, and they don't realize that they're the problem, it becomes a vicious cycle. That's right. That's right. And what, what cracks me up about what you're, <laughs> what you're saying, I'm thinking about my sons. I have two sons, 11 and eight, and they say it all the time. Mommy, I'm trying not to create more work for you. I'm not, I'm trying <laughs> not to create more work for you. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. you know, don't, don't dirty up that extra cup or dish because I'm creating more work for you. And, and that's exactly what we do oftentimes is that mm-hmm. if we aren't, at least working somewhat hand in glove between HR and DEI, that's exactly what happens. HR can create more work for DEI. And I would say both ways. Yeah. DEI can create more work for HR if we aren't working on a parallel track. But that right. requires lots of communication and lots of thought when it comes to what's the vision for this organization? What's needed? What's necessary? I, I would challenge, let me go back to your panel because I so appreciate that example. I'm going back to your panel the mere notion that you would have any homogenous panel is problematic for me. Like if I'm going to have a black panel, then I want to have black women, black men, black trans individuals, black LGBT folks, people that are black from various spiritual and religious perspectives. So feeding into the notion of being monolithic, any of us can fall in that trap. So I'm challenging everybody not to think in those monolithic ways because you create more work for somebody, usually the CDO or someone who's in the DEI space. So yeah, it's, it's important to be cognizant of all that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the other thing that, that came up for me um, was we're talking about, there's a lot of conversation about the great resignation right now. And what I'm hearing, especially in my coaching work, my coaching work with uh, black and brown people that aren't in DEI, right? So I have a, a segment of my yes. coaching that I do that. And there's a disconnect between, you know, what's happening programmatically and their experiences. Yes. And so what I am noticing is that gap. Like, how do you mind the gap? Because if people are having problems with racism, sexism, discrimination in any way, hmm they need to have a, a, an advocate for them in the organization mm-hmm. that's going to be able to step back and say, okay, this is a systemic problem. I'm looking at the data and I'm noticing who's complaining. I'm noticing who's leaving and the reasons why. 
And if this is separate from HR, then there's a partnership that can happen to say, okay, how do we solve this problem versus mm. it's been happening to a lot of people. And I think what has happened to, I, I feel like a lot of DEI practitioners kind of find themselves in this trap. Like we see what's happening, but because compliance is the mindset and protecting the company and mitigating risk is the is kind of That's the right. goal. That's right. Um, mm. How do we push this out? How do we, protect the company, right? Which mm. oftentimes comes back to gaslighting of the employee. That's right, that's or right. Or putting them on a performance plan mm. or pushing them out as the problem versus, okay, there's a systemic challenge here that needs someone, and which usually is the person in DEI. That's right, that's that right. That can step in and say, how can we partner to shift the culture and work in partnership with HR to do that? Um, and that I think is a missing piece. Yes, 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 absolutely. Well, and here's the other thing too, is that oh, the, the great the great resignation is very real. And I'm still in with mindset shifts as well, is that the great awareness is now here. Mm-hmm. Because we usually want to say that it's an employer's market, and we know now it's an employee's market. And so every time I hear people say, well, people don't want to work and people are lazy, I'm like, whoa, 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 mm-hmm. wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not accurate, number one. And number two, employees are deciding that they are going to place value on themselves and what they yes. are worth. And so I feel like, yes, we are speaking truth when it comes to speaking to a great resignation, but I feel like we're only telling part of the story when it comes to mm. that, that we're telling, yes, there's a great resignation and people are leaving, but nobody's saying or, or highlighting what people are leaving for. And so right. and let me give you an example of that. So in my last role, I was one of 18 Black women that left over the last two years from my organization. I didn't even know that until some white allies brought this up and Mm. brought it up to HR that, hey, Shauna is now number 18. (laughs) When it comes to this entire organization, there is nothing wrong with the 18 Black women that walked out the door. There has to be something wrong with the door in the building that they just left. So what is the problem? And so that's one piece. And then the other piece, as I left and as plenty of us left, there were specific reasons as to why we left. So what are people leaving for? They're leaving for their value. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you, you know this, being someone who's a coach and a consultant and so forth, the role that I was in previously, I could probably make, what I would make in that role in two weeks, I could probably make in two hours now because I found an industry that values our skill set differently, right? Yes. Or the idea of not, I, I live in the DMV area. So not having, right. So not having on a good day, you know, an hour commute in one direction versus actually being able to see my kids dropped off and picked up from school and dropping in because they know mommy is going to show up whenever, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. our form of discipline. So when it comes to all that, what did people leave for? And I could go on and on. My story is just one, but many stories of what are people leaving for? And they're deciding that there are some things that need to be reorganized and this organization, this business, this industry may not be providing the value that I'm looking for. And so I now have to take hold of the reins and make some decisions. And I happen to be one of many that are leaving. Because as you remember, I know you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, this was called the great tsunami, where people were afraid of losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. And within two years, we've gotten to a place where people are like, 
not only am I not afraid, but I've got 17 (laughs) different options that I can lead for. So, you know, holding both of those at the very same time. So I do think there's a huge shift. And I think those organizations that should be interested in protecting the company, but also remembering that those employees are the company. Are the company, exactly. How do we protect both at the same time? And I think, you know, we really need to consider, are we willing to pay what people are worth? And I know I keep going back to mindset shifts. One more, a mindset shift around what efficiency and what fiscal prudence and responsibility is. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that we all have been, especially in the U.S., we have been in cultures and systems and industries where it was all about how to get more done with less resources constantly, constantly, always. I, I even challenged my previous client right before I jumped on here with you. I challenged them in their careers to think of one time where they had been appropriately staffed and appropriately resourced, and they could not think of one moment in their entire mm-hmm. careers where they had been efficiently staffed or uh, funded, resourced. So given that, we're now saying that we're not interested in playing that game. Mm-hmm. And we're ready to have a new mindset around what is going to be properly resourced so that people don't burn out. And people are no longer completely the, the mental health community, for example, is being completely obliterated when it comes to the professionals because we don't have enough professionals to meet the need. Yep. I'm looking at the root of the problem. I'm not interested in putting Band-Aids on things. And so I think both of those are really crucial mindsets to add to our list of mindset shifts because we keep putting the blame on the victims of employment when in fact, let's look at all of it. What are they leaving for? They're leaving yeah. for some valid reasons, very valid reasons. Yeah, and I think to your point, so many companies now, um, one that I left, right, started increasing salary left and right, like, oh, and promotion. And I'm like, you know what? Sometimes it's not about money. Sometimes it's about the environment. And that's so it. that's it. That's it. You can pay me a billion dollars, but if the <laughs> environment's toxic, I'm not going to stay in that. That's right. That's and right. so how do you go beyond? So when you say value, I think it's it goes beyond just financial value. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, do I feel um, that my skills are valued? Do I feel as if I can do what I need to do, balance work and life and not necessarily just have work and build my life around work, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and especially in this pandemic, I think so many of us have learned that when we can work from home, when you can be able to do and balance more things, right? That's right. That's so right. those are the things yeah. that I think, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see this shift, which I yes. think is, is phenomenal. Yes. Um, and so I want to ask you one more question before we get into my final question, yeah. which is, you know, as we think about the, this partnership, right? Because mm-hmm. I think we both agree. Um, people think that I bash HR a lot. I do. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot of value in HR and traditional HR. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That being said, I think that there needs to be some 21st century HR also that needs mm-hmm. to that needs to step into into mm-hmm. the um, view, uh, mm-hmm. which is a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But <laughs> yes. I think that there's value in having um, an HR team and entity. Mm. But I also see it has to be separate from diversity and inclusion if you truly want to have systems that are equitable and diverse and inclusive. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. With no boundaries because yeah. HR is going to give you boundaries when you think, think about compliance. And mm-hmm. I always think about when I think of HR, I think of legal because those two That's teams right. are That's right. mm-hmm. attached to the hip. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do you create equitable systems um, in partnership mm-hmm. with versus making them one and the same. Because I think we're going to continue seeing what we're seeing if it's one and the same. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah, that partnership piece. Well, a few things I'm thinking about is that, um, again, I think it's almost like twins. You know, we want you to be parallel to one another, but not the same yet and still, Mm -hmm. right? And so given that, keeping one, one, each other side by side. um, Another thing that I want to think about, too, is in regards to just the simple notion of how much time it takes to do the work well. Yes. I see organizations that hire people half time, three quarter time, et cetera, when it comes to DEI work. And those very mm-hmm. same people may be getting that half time and three quarter time check, but they're doing full time and double time mm-hmm. work. And so I'm imagining even as you do that with DEI and you want to add that on top of HR, which is definitely a full time job. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's fair to, uh, unless we turn hu- superhuman and I didn't know it yet. I just don't think that's fair when it comes to just the allocation of human resources themselves is that there's not enough time in the day for people to do DEI well on top of something else. So let me just put that there. So that's another reason why I think they need to be twins that work side by side. With I love one another. that. Um, another thing that I think is really important too is for um, going back to what we mentioned before, I think that HR can be the floor and not the ceiling to the work. And Mm. that's a real challenge, right? So like I mentioned before, when it comes to collecting demographics or even what's the policy, you know, there's been plenty of times where I had to play chess quite a bit rather than playing checkers because, um, for example, not writing the policy that employees or students wanted because I knew that writing that policy would bring a target to us and highlight us in ways that we did not want to be highlighted. And Mm. we would have more flexibility not having a policy than actually having one, for example, and helping each other to think in those ways. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that chess piece is really important because you both have to play well together in order to win. Um, I think the, the last piece of the puzzle too, and let me just share with you, you know, I've, I've trained attorneys when it comes from a DEI perspective. I've worked with general counsel my entire career. One of the things that I really appreciate about very strong general counsel when it comes to helping with DEI and HR is that the intention of general counsel usually is never to throw cold water on DEI work. In fact, it's to say, let me protect you so that your work can be effective. And usually what we do is we make HR and legal counsel out as the boogeyman that, oh, they just don't want us to do anything. No, actually, they're giving you the federal and state legalese (laughs) to make sure that you avoid these big landmines that could prevent the very things that you want to see happen with DEI work. Mm -hmm. And so given that, when it goes back to that partnership piece that you mentioned before, you know, maybe we need to consider general counsel like that first cousin, right? Like we need them in the family in order to get this work done. And they're going to block for us when we need them to. Um, And, and I think we, we vilify them a bit too much um, given my, but again, it's, it depends on the organization, but I think we vilify them a lot as if they're trying to prevent things from happening rather than saying we need to play in this particular area. But if we need to keep this gray in order for us to push the boundaries, I'm trying to help you do that. 
right? And um, I think so- it goes back to, sorry, not to cut you out because I'm, I'm, I'm loving yeah, what you're saying, but I think it goes back to that individual work, right? right? So right. if you have exactly. general counsel that doesn't understand diversity, equity, and inclusion or the impact that it, ha- that it has on the business, that's right. right? And they're seeing things from their own lens. That's right, exactly. That's when exactly. you start to get the, that pushback, like they don't want us to do anything. Exactly, but that's it. Again, I know several lawyers who happen to be from marginalized communities that see how they can partner with doing this work. So I absolutely, I love, love, love the whole twins and and first cousin (laughs) analogy. Like I'm a bonus Uh mom to twin boys that I'm just like, we love them the same, but they have two different personalities. Exactly. You have to give them both what they need to thrive. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And then the first cousin that just comes comes in and like, what you need? Like, I I got got you. you. I got you. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I I got you. Love it. Love it. So the last question that I have for you is one that you know I always ask. You know, what do you do to take care of yourself? What do you do to Mm. fill your cup? How do you make sure that you stay ready for this work? Mm, that's such a great question. So I'm, I'm going to give you two quick answers, one pre-pandemic, one post-pandemic, okay? okay. Um, pre-pandemic, it would be travel and a lot of fitness, you know, when it mm-hmm. comes to, you know, I've been a runner for quite a few years. I actually did that after my first son to drop a lot of weight off, that type of thing. Um, so it was travel and fitness pre-pandemic. And then, of course, we got cold water kind of thrown on that quite mm-hmm. a bit, um, especially when it comes to, you know, organized, you know, whether it's a marathon or whether it's a triathlon fun or whatever I've been doing in the past. Now I'm at a place where limited travel is still okay. We're being careful, of course. Um, But for me, especially as we came to through and beyond both a pandemic, both, well, three things, a pandemic, the summer of 2020, where it was a heightened Mm -hmm. awareness of everything in society around the globe. um, And, you know, with so much going on with you know, family and lifestyle changes and so forth. There was just a lot going on. Um, And then the general election. Um, What works for me best is boundary setting. Love it, yeah. Boundary setting is what helps me to fill my cup. And what gets interesting is that, you know, people that are outside of the DEI space don't think about it the same way we do, where, okay, we're doing DEI work professionally. If you're from a marginalized population, you're living that work every Mm -hmm. single day. Um, I, like I mentioned before, I'm raising two black boys. That's a whole, yeah, that's a yes. whole branch of everything all by itself. And then you have people that are reaching out and saying, I'm white and I don't want my kids to be raised up like their grandparents. Send me a book list. Or da, 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 da. And you're wanting to help in those ways. But I, I call it the Elastigirl feeling that I have where people are pulling me in different directions. And there's some, actually most weekends now where Nope. Turning the phone off for the majority of the weekend. If you're not my parents or my children or a family member, I'm not answering. Um, LinkedIn can wait. You know, email can wait, that type of thing. Even the news and TV can wait because, um, and this is not to bash journalism or any of that, but it's just simply to say that the wait is for DEI people, double, triple, quadruple, quintuple fold because we're getting the weight of DEI in every single direction. And at some point you have to say, I'm going to win this game because I'm choosing not to play. 
even if yeah. it's for two days or for a couple of days that I'm not willing to play this. Or yes, I know racism is real. And yes, I realize that we have yet another hashtag, but for my own well-being and in order to keep me in the fight longer term, I have to cut y'all off for two days and being very okay with that. And so for me, it's that boundary setting piece. You know, people send me a text and say, hey, did you hear about such and such at the grocery store? Nope. And I'm not going to hear about it for two days because I have the rest of my life to fight that fight. No offense to anyone and my heart grieves for all. But if you're interested in staying in the fight, especially what I've read when it comes to chief diversity officers, we only hang in here for three to five years at best. If that. I'm pushing up on 26. Okay. I am very okay to shut things down, even if it's for a few days in order to keep hanging on and continuing to stay in this work, because I, I hope I'm needed. People tell me that I'm needed. I want to be needed and I want to support the next generation of folks that will continue to do the work that you and I are doing right now. I can't do that unless I take a break. So no. boundaries are crucial. Very crucial. Love to me. I love it. Love yeah. it. Love it. Shauna, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, my um, friend. I appreciate just, it. Yes, no, this has been affirming. And like I said, you know, from that first connection point <laughs> that we had, I was just like, yes, okay. I, I, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to thank everyone that has been able to watch or listen to this episode of DEI After Five. You know, you can always find us here every Tuesday at 5.15 p.m. on YouTube or on your favorite podcast station. Um, and we will see you the next time. Have a good one. Bye.